Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. Initially, um, I wanted to go through John 6, 16 to 58, but I think um, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit hefty, the the passage, and so I, I think we will go through verse 40 today, uh, John 6, 16 to 40, but I'll read through 58. And so what we've been uh, looking at last week, uh, we looked at the miracle of uh, Jesus feeding uh, what is called the uh, feeding of the 5,000, but as I said last week, there were probably anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people uh, when you're including women and children and, and uh, the whole families. So he feeds them, and he does this miracle by uh, taking these five barley loaves and two small fish, and he creates food right before their eyes, and, and he, he does this as a sign to them. He, he does this sign and this miracle that they, it would point them to his identity as the promised Messiah, and this was always, when you read through the scriptures, this was always the purpose of Jesus' signs and miracles. Uh, the reason there are signs and miracles in the scriptures is to point people to uh, the power and the authority of God. It's to reveal God's nature and character and purpose uh, to people. And specifically in the Gospels, it was there to confirm who Jesus was. This is what the signs were meant and the miracles were meant to do. And even as you get to into the apostles and the miracles that are being done in the early church, it's a way of confirming uh, the authority of the gospel that they're preaching. It's a way of uh, confirming that Jesus is who he said he is. And, and these miracles always pointed to that. And Jesus' signs always served that purpose. And uh, the reason that John talks about these signs of Jesus ultimately he says at the end of his gospel, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. This is, this is what John is after. In a very real sense, this is an evangelistic gospel. It's calling you to believe on the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we read about these signs and we see these miracles, that's who we're supposed to see. This is who we're supposed to put our faith in and believe in and repent of our sins and turn to him. Miracles and signs, even the feeding of the 5,000, were never meant to be an end in and of themselves for people to pursue. And I think this is important for us in our day and age, and it really has been throughout the history of uh, redemptive history, uh, it's important to understand. And the reason is that people who pursue signs and miracles, even today, are destined for disappointment. And I'll explain why. If you pursue signs and miracles as an end in and of themselves 
you will be destined for disappointment. And the reason is really quite simple. Because if you receive a miraculous gift in some way, let's say a physical healing, say you're struggling and God miraculously heals you, and that's been your pursuit all of your life. You've been consumed with wanting this miraculous healing. And it's not wrong asking God for miracles. Paul asked that his blindness would be removed, and he asked three times, and the Lord said no, and Paul accepted that, or, you know, his eyesight. I don't know about blindness, but, um, and the Lord said no, and Paul moved on. But had he continued, continued pursuing that end from Jesus, he would have been disappointed because in the end of the day, that relief and that miracle, it's only going to last so long. Isn't it true? If you're healed of something, how long is it going to last? Only as long as you live on this earth. Isn't it true? You may receive it, and eventually you will be ultimately disappointed and unsatisfied by it because at the end, we will all go to the grave. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. And so you may live this life with all kinds of health and all kinds of success and all kinds of money, and all kinds of safety. You may live this life like you are the king of North County, San Diego. The biggest house on the biggest hill with the most money. You may live your life like that, even thinking that God has blessed me so tremendously. And at the end, like Jesus says to the man who was collecting in his silos. Do you remember that parable? He fills one silo up, and he says, I'm going to build another silo, and he fills that silo up. Then after he fills up all of his silos, he says, ah, my, my soul is satisfied. I'm good. I've got all that I need. Now I can relax and enjoy the fruit of my labor. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, you fool. Don't you know that your soul will be required of you? And so all of these things and these miracles, even that Jesus could do, the point is that they are temporary and the purpose of them was not to pursue them as an end in themselves, but it was to draw you to see that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy your greatest need. Jesus Christ alone can give you what you really truly need, which is what? The forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God, peace, do you want peace in your life? The way you have peace in your life is to have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and that's what the soul needs. Jesus is not 
what these people in John 6 really concluded about him after they saw this miracle. You see, after they saw the miracle Jesus did, they basically concluded, in a kind of a crass way of saying it, but they concluded that Jesus was like a divine Santa Claus. A divine Santa Claus that, who could give them whatever it is they wanted. Jesus was there before them who could fill their bellies in this life and make them happy. That's what they wanted from Jesus. And so they saw him as a prophet, rightly. They saw him as a potential king, rightly. But Jesus was saying, you're missing the point of the sign. And the point is that he would ultimately confirm that he is the Messiah, God incarnate, who would die for the sins of his people. And that's what they needed to see. They needed to see him through the eyes of their bellies, not with the eyes of their bellies, but with eyes of faith in him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as John is moving on and telling us about this miracle and how they misinterpreted the sign, now he's going to talk to us really in these verses about a contrast here. Because what's interesting is how John goes from this miracle, and if you've read through the Gospel of John, suddenly you're reading about Jesus walking on water. And it's a miracle in and of itself, but you might think that that's kind of disconnected from the story, and then he goes into talking about the discourse. But what John is doing, because his book is about believing in Jesus, what he's doing is he's contrasting here how the disciples ultimately see Jesus, and then he's going to go into explaining how the unbeliever sees Jesus. And this is the question for us. When you see Jesus, do you receive Jesus, or do you want to receive the benefits of Jesus? That's the two. This is what is true faith. The first point is going to contrast faith in terms of how the disciples themselves viewed Jesus. That's verses 16 to 21. And then 22 to... Um, actually, we'll go to verse 34, is how these false believers viewed Jesus. So let's pick up and read after the miracle in verse 16. <clears throat> when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, 
and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me you, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That concludes our reading for this morning. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we come before you in prayer again, thankful that we can approach your throne of grace, thankful for these ancient words, your word, that you have given to us, and now we pray for your grace upon us as we look at them. Help us to understand um, your word. Holy Spirit, help us to, to see clearly. Help me to speak clearly. May you accompany your word with power and authority, conviction, and comfort, and correction. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so you see the contrast here, starting in verse 16. So they had done the miracle. They're all, these, these 10 to 20,000 people were fed, and evening came, and so Jesus' disciples, they went down to the sea. And you know from the other Gospels that Jesus sent them there. So Jesus sent them down to get the boat ready, to, to, to sail the boat away. And he went up in the mountain, Mark tells us, to, to pray. And so it's now evening. 
and his disciples went down to the sea, and they got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. So they went without Jesus to, to take the boat to row to Capernaum back, back west of where they were. And it was dark, and Jesus hadn't come to them. So you could picture them out in the middle of this sea. This sea is 600 feet below sea level. So if you were on that sea, you would be 600 feet below sea level. And the mountain itself, the hills, would rise up to, I think it's around like 3,000 feet. And so because of that contrast, what would often happen on the sea is you would have these cold winds that would come from down on the mountain and they would come into the warmth of being 600 feet below and that mixture of the cold air and the, and the warm air, um, just like you have here in the, the Atlantic, you got these hurricane seasons, it would create these little squ squalls, as you would call them, or little mini hurricanes or storms uh, frequently on that, on that lake. And so it's nighttime now, and from the perspective of the people in the ancient Near East, one of the things that they feared was there was a fear of the sea. Like the ocean was looked at a place of, as like uh, evil or monsters or darkness. The sea was not where we live on the ocean here in San Diego, and we go to the beach, and we swim in the water, and we go in the waves, and we love it. It wasn't really like that in the ancient times. When they saw the the ocean and the sea it was a very foreboding place as they, they looked at it, and yet they had to go on them, and they were fishermen, and so they got on the boat, and at nighttime of all times, they are going on onto the sea, and Jesus wasn't with them because Jesus had went into the mountain to pray. And so as the sea then is becoming rough, John says, because of these strong winds that are blowing, when they had rowed about... Uh, three or four miles. So you could picture them going against the wind and they're rowing. They're about three or four miles and they're not like really next to the shore. They're kind of in the middle of the, what they call a sea or a lake. And they're trying to row and they see Jesus and John specifically says walking on the sea. Now some people try and say, oh, they were really close to shore and when they looked out, and they saw Jesus. Jesus was really kind of walking on the sand. And so they saw Jesus and it looked like he was walking on the sand. This is what liberal scholars were saying. And then, of course, my, my response would be then, why were they frightened? Right? Because that's what John says. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. They're frightened because, I guess I'd ask you, have you ever seen someone walk on water? How would you react if you walked on water? I know sometimes I, my, my parents had a swimming pool, and I would, as a kid, we would, um, we would go swimming, and my brothers and I, we would try to walk on the water. I don't know if you've ever done that as a kid. You see the water there, and you're like, let's see if I can walk on the water, and you put your foot on the water, and immediately you, you sink. You just go under because water doesn't hold you up. It just doesn't happen. 
And none of us have ever seen that happen. And yet here is Jesus. He is walking near the boat in the middle of the sea. And the other gospels say they thought that they saw a ghost because they couldn't explain it. And so they were naturally frightened that Jesus is walking on, on this water. Now, when they see Jesus, and here is the contrast I think that John wants to bring out. They were frightened, but Jesus said to them, it is I, it's probably the best words they ever heard, it is I, do not be afraid. And then what does John say? John says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And so think of it this way. When Jesus then comes and presents himself to these disciples, and they're rowing hard and they're working hard, and he says, when Jesus presents himself, it is I, they were glad to receive him into the boat. They didn't receive him into the boat because they believed that Jesus would calm the storm or that Jesus would take them to the other side of the lake immediately, did they? What happened is Jesus came to them. He said, here I am, it is I. And they were just glad to receive him. It wasn't about a miracle it wasn't about having their bellies filled. It wasn't about anything that Jesus would do for them in this life like he did when he fed the 5,000. It was solely because they wanted Jesus. They wanted to be with Jesus. They wanted to receive Jesus into the boat with them. This is, this is what saving faith is. Saving faith, as John has been telling us, comes to this point in their life where you see Jesus as Savior and Lord and you come to Jesus for who Jesus is. You come to Jesus to receive all of him as prophet, priest, and king, as your God, as your creator, as your redeemer, and you bring nothing to the table. And the only thing that you want, the only person that you know in your life that you need more than anything else in this world is you need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus and no one else. And if there is one person that you want in the boat with you, if there's one person you want with you walking through this life, is there, if there is one person you could choose in the world to spend the rest of your life with and to serve and to love and to obey and to follow, if there's one person, that one person is Jesus and no one else matters. This is why Jesus says, Take up your cross daily and follow me. 
If you are not willing to let go even of your own family if it's necessary, Jesus says you are not worthy of following me. You must deny yourself and you must receive Jesus and do so gladly. That's what the disciples did. When they saw Jesus, he said, it is I. And they gladly received him into the boat. And then you know what the Lord does? Immediately, John says, after they received Jesus for who he is, the boat was at the land to which they were going. They took him in, and Jesus brought them immediately to safety. Another miracle. Not only is Jesus walking on the water, but he gets in the boat, and they immediately are at land safely. And I think part of this is, if you want to turn back to Psalm 107, I think part of this is what the psalmist wrote about in um, in Psalm 100, 107. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm, no, I'll show you. I need a new Bible. My Bible is falling apart. Like, literally, the seams came out, and it, it slips all over the place. So I'm going to got to get myself. It's just, it's hard to let go of your Bible, right? Because you write so many notes in it all the time, and, but I, I think it's time. Anyway, Psalm 107. Your, um, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy gale, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. So you could see the waves. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And so specifically there, I thought, verse 30, it's very interesting. The wave, the boats, the fear, the anxiousness. And verse 30 says, Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. That's what Jesus did here. They received Jesus, and he brought them to their desired haven. And that's what he offers to you in the gospel. Jesus says, come to me, receive me, 
and I will deliver you from certain judgment. Receive Jesus for who he is and for what he has done for you. On the other hand, back to John, you see a different kind of belief, a different kind of desire for Jesus, a belief that really isn't actually, you might say, a belief. It's not a true saving faith because John goes on to tell us, now Jesus hasn't even explained the meaning of the sign yet to them. We'll see that next week. But here, he's kind of correcting them, and we see this contrast in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, so this is where they were left after the feeding, they saw that there had been only one boat there. So they knew when they were being fed, there was only one boat, and they were watching, and they saw that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They're very keen. They're very observant. They're looking, following, watching Jesus. And so these other boats from Tiberias, they came near to that place where they'd eaten the bread. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum. And what does he say they were doing? They were seeking Jesus. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? They wanted to go and see Jesus. They, they wanted to find Jesus. And in some sense, that's not a very bad start. And you might think, boy, these people are very, very keen on wanting to talk about Jesus, wanting to hear from Jesus. They want to find Jesus. They talk about Jesus all the time. And so they're seeking him. And so when they found him, on the other side of the sea, John says, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, when when did you come here? So now they're like, oh, respectful of Jesus. And Jesus, you know, we've been wanting to be with you. We, we've been looking for you on the other side, and we didn't see him when you got here, but here you are, Jesus. You're before us, and, and they're very kind of excited. When, when did you come here, Jesus? We really want to be with you, Jesus. We were looking for you, Jesus. And Jesus answered them. This is pretty revealing. Jesus says, he looks right into their heart. As he looks into each of our hearts, he looks right into it. And he evaluates it like that. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Now, they did see the sign, but his point is, you are seeking me not because you saw what the sign pointed to, namely me. You are seeking me not for me, Jesus says, but you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
They're seeking Jesus because they got something from Jesus that they really wanted. And their bellies were filled and they were satisfied because they received from Jesus all the things that they wanted in this world. And that's why Jesus says in verse 27, he rebukes them as he sees their heart. Because remember, it's a lot of work for them to travel there, but they worked to do it. They got in the boats, they rode, they walked, they got there to where Jesus was. And after all of that work, Jesus says in verse 27, I know why you came to me. And I know why you went through the work of coming here to find me. You came here not for me. You came here for your bellies. And then he says to them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So what Jesus is saying to them is, listen, why are you laboring and working for the food that perishes? Why are you laboring and pursuing and working and striving for all the things in this world that are destined to perish with time, but there is one who never perishes or is destined to perish with time, and who is it? Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ lives forevermore. He is the life of God. He is God himself who came in. He will never die. And he is the food that will last forever if you would receive him. And Jesus says, you keep working and pursuing all the things in this world that are destined to perish. That is not saving faith. To see Jesus as a means of filling your desires in life here on earth is not saving faith. But to see Jesus as the one who will give himself for you and for your life, to believe in him to that end as Savior and Lord is how you must be saved. And it's not by your works. It's by God's grace. And of course, also their unbelief, you see it in verse 28. Because after he says this to them, that he is the one from God on whom he has set his seal, the Holy Spirit uh, living and dwelling with Jesus and empowering Christ from the Father sets his seal on Jesus as the Son of God. Then they said to him, so materialistic-minded, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They turn it right away. They're like, okay, what do we need to do then? We want to do the works of God. We, we, want, to, we want to pursue that food. We want to pursue not these things you're rebuking us for, but we want to pursue the food that endures to eternal life. And so what do we need to do? to be doing the works of God, and Jesus answered them. This is the work of God. You ready? This is the work of God for you. This is what you need to do. You believe in him. You believe in him. 
whom he has sent. You believe in Jesus. You, you trust him. You receive him. You take him and he, you don't make him Lord and Savior. He is Lord and Savior. You just humbly come to him and place your faith and trust in him, which is a gift that God gives. And so their response in their unbelief, because he says that to you, you might be asking, why should I believe in Jesus? You may be asking that if you don't know Christ right now. You're, why? What is it about Jesus? What is it about you that I should believe in you, Jesus? Of all the religions in the world and all the gods and all the deities that people claim, you hear this all the time in our society, why Jesus? Why you, Jesus? Who do you think that you are? And this is what they said to him in verse 30. Get this. Jesus says, believe in me. And they actually have the audacity to say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Can you, can you imagine? Well, Jesus, what sign are you going to show us that we should believe in you? I don't know, man, like, boy, that is thick. They had just seen the sign that he did. They had just witnessed miracle of creation, and they want a sign. What work do you perform? You know what, Jesus? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You know, it's written, God gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus says to them, He's so patient. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. See, they, they want some kind of comparison with Moses. If you're as good as Moses, like we followed Moses, certainly, Jesus, you must be able to do what Moses did when we received manna from God from heaven. Certainly, you must be as great as Moses who gave us the bread from heaven. But Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. That's a good request, isn't it? And Jesus says to them, I am the bread. Jesus says, I am giving myself for you. I am coming to go to the cross to give my life as a sacrifice and a ransom to pay your debt, to take your judgment, to rise again from the dead so that you don't have to bear that. I give my life, Jesus says, for your life. What do you need to do? Believe in me, he says. And of course, 
We'll see next week. The response of the believer is, yes, I believe. The response of the unbeliever is to grumble. It's to dispute. It's to say, who does this guy think he is? It's to say, this is too hard. Who can stand it? And that's how they respond. But I pray, beloved, that as we look at this passage, we respond with those, the glorious eyes of faith that God gives. And we see Jesus as the bread of life. And whoever comes to him shall not hunger. And whoever believes in him shall never thirst. I pray you are satisfied with your Savior this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your kindness to us and your patience with us. Father, we, we go through a lot of things in this world that you have ordained for us, and we go through a lot of trials and tribula tribulations, and you are aware of each and every one of them. And there are times that we are greatly suffering as our loved ones are sick and ailing or even as we have sicknesses and diseases that are debilitating. And each of us here, Father, knows uh, loved ones that are and friends that are hurting and who would really and truly desire a miraculous healing. And Father, we know that there is nothing wrong in and of itself with that desire. And, and in fact, um, each of us lift up before you those that we know that need a healing. And we know that it is your prerogative to heal or to not to heal. And you ask us to come before you with requests and make our petitions known. And so we do do that in faith. We, we, in faith, ask you to do those great works of, of um, just restoration and healing as you see fit, but we don't come with an expectation that you owe that to us. We know that you do those things for your good purposes, and, and so we can just humbly come and ask that you would do that for our loved ones in whatever way each of us are praying. But at the same time, Lord, we know that when we bring that kind of request to you, we don't, we don't come before you for only that kind of request because we know that ultimately what each of us need, even our loved ones that may be hurting, what we all need most is the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of our soul. And you have so graciously given all that we need in Christ. You will one day restore this body as you have promised when you raise it from the grave and you unite it with the soul that you have redeemed. And we know that you will do that one day and we are thankful to know that you have given us that kind of eternal life in Christ. For we have come to Jesus to receive him, not for what he gives us in this world, but for the eternal life that he has promised to all those who place their faith in him. 
So thank you, O oh God, for that gift. Thank you for the eyes of faith to see. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the bread of life that you are, for coming into this world to offer yourself in place of our sin, for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, for being a Redeemer and a High Priest who was willing to lay down his life to intercede for us and to be our mediator. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rising again from the dead by your own power and authority, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for rising again for our justification and for the life that you now live before your Father in heaven and where you're seated at his right hand. Thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to take this truth to the ends of the earth, to proclaim the gospel faithfully, to call people to believe in you for who you are and not for what they can get. And we pray that you would even make that reality true for all of us that are here this morning, that we would all receive you by faith and trust you for our hope and for our salvation. We pray these things in Christ, in your name, amen.